The Christian faith is the only faith that celebrates with such drama the death of its leader. Whereas the others celebrate the life, the teaching in particular, we see all of that as simply validation of the primary purpose for the life of Jesus, and that is the cross. Think about the fact that we have turned what was the most scandalous form of execution in the Roman world into a common piece of jewelry. We wear a cross to mark who we are. Consider the imagery. To translate that into modern time would be the equivalent of turning an electric chair into a piece of jewelry and wearing it. It's morbid. It was a symbol of death and shame. And yet it has become for us a symbol of honor and life. And that pretty much sums up Christianity right there. We've learned as we've taken this walk down familiar paths, stopping at several familiar scenes along the way, that the cross was always the plan, was always the plan from the beginning. We're coming back to these familiar places to recapture the glory, to reconnect with those events that shape who we are. Last week, we we spent some time in Gethsemane. Today, I want to spend time, I want to linger with you at Golgotha. The Latin term is Calvary, and it means the skull. I've chosen today to look at this scene through Matthew's eyes. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. And I'm going to read verse 27 all the way to the end of the chapter. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him away to be crucified. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. They offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling on Elijah. 
Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. This is the word of God. As I come to look at this scene of the cross, I'm mindful of the fact that no other event in history has been written about, been explored, been debated. Thousands upon thousands of volumes have been written. And there's no way that we could, in the few moments that we have, do full justice to all that the cross of Jesus represents. My goal today is not to try to summarize the whole of it, but just to capture a few things that are important for us as we desire to reconnect and capture the glory. And we are going to, as I talked about, look at it through five lenses. And the first two are the easy ones, the enemies of Jesus and then the followers of Jesus. We have been tracking the enemies since Luke 8 and 9, looking at Jesus through their lens of tradition and secondary laws and centuries of teaching that had so wrapped the Hebrew Scriptures inside their own ideas that even when the Christ came, rather than seeing him as a fulfillment of all their longings, they saw him as heretical, as a problem to be dealt with. And they have been rising in power. Last week, we saw them heavy with authority having worked their carefully laid plan. They couldn't trap Jesus through his own words, and so by half-truths and out-and-out lies, they managed to create a case to manipulate both the spiritual authorities but also the Roman authorities. We see the enemies of Jesus rising, and as we take a look at Golgotha, just in that moment, without the ability to look back, we would believe that they are the victors at the height of their authority. And that's the first thing we see. 
Indeed, as Jesus said in Gethsemane, this is your time when darkness reigns. So filled with themselves that they actually are now venting all of their rage. In verse 41 and following, in the same way the chief priests, the teachers and the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. So we see their hatred now having free reign because they are experiencing complete and utter victory. They've removed the demon. Very soon they can get back to business as usual. We see one final thing that they are doing, and that's wrapping up all the loose ends. One more thing to take care of, and that's to make sure that Jesus stays in his grave. Not that they believe in his promise, But who knows if his followers wouldn't come and take his body, remembering also that promise. Of course, it's interesting. It's the enemies of Jesus that remember that he would say, if you kill me, I'll rise again from the dead. It wasn't his followers who we'll look at in a few moments. But they're on the top of their game. And they come to Pilate and say, it's good for you and it's good for us to make sure that that body stays in its tomb. And so we see the Roman guard put in front of the tomb. We see the seal, the Roman seal, the governor's ring on two pieces of wax with a sash between the stone and the tomb wall. To break that would be to bring upon yourself the penalty of death instantly without trial. They, they had buttoned everything up. They're at the height. If, if they're at the height, the followers of Jesus are at the lowest point that we see them at any time in the Gospels. The real high moment was when they accompanied Jesus into Jerusalem. The triumphal entry, as they they came in, they expected so much. But now we see them dispersed and in hiding. What a difference from one week earlier when they came in. We see them defeated and ashamed. Peter, as he had denied Jesus three times, went away weeping. Judas, who had betrayed Jesus and And in the end, was so desperate that he takes his own life. And then the third thing we see about the friends of Jesus is disillusionment. They've lost hope. There's that statement, the father of disillusionment is illusion. And they're victims of their own illusion. Right, Jesus. Wrong plan. One interesting thing to trace is this argument that begins from Luke chapter 9, right up until the night Jesus is betrayed fully expecting that Jesus was going to go sit on some throne someplace in Jerusalem. And they were going to sit alongside him and have power, fighting for position, all that gone. And now what they're left with is hopelessness. Let's now move to what we ought to look at very humbly, and that is the perspective of Jesus himself, because none of us can fully know. We can only look at what he does and make observations And, of course, there are many different observations that have been made. As I come to this point, all of you, if you've been a follower of Jesus for any period of time, have your pet interpretations of some of these things that we're going to look at. So I ask you to set those aside. What do we see happening to Jesus? The first thing we see, of course, is the primary thing that we must never miss. And that is what Jesus is doing on the cross is taking our sin and our punishment. That's what he's there for. That's what he came to do. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that 
God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us. How did it happen? He goes on and says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What is Jesus doing on the cross? Is he failing? No, he is succeeding. He is taking our sin and our punishment. But even while he's doing that, you see something really marvelous. Have you ever noticed that right up until his last breath, Jesus never stops ministering and never stops teaching and never stops caring? Sometimes we miss that because we see the anguish. We focus so much on the pain. We treat the seven final words of Jesus as some sort of poetic journey. And we read great symbolism to them. And each is worthy of it. But if you just come at it and look at it, what you see is Jesus still on the cross being the Savior, ministering to people. Look at him as he, as he cries out to the Father on behalf of his executioner's Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Look at him as he offers grace to the thief on the cross and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. When he looks down at his mother and John, the disciple who he has adopted as a younger brother, perhaps even a, a spiritual son, and in caring for both of them, says, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother, caring and ministering. Listen to him as he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Is it possible that even when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That rather than experiencing momentary defeat or expressing some notion that God has turned his face from him, is it possible that Jesus even in saying that is ministering? Is, is that possible? I want to show great respect to the various viewpoints about why Jesus says this. Traditionally, and there's great merit for it. And I don't want to argue either or. It certainly could be both. We think of Jesus crying out to his father who has forsaken him because that's what sin does. It separates us from God. Isaiah 59, 2. Your sins have put a separation between you and your God. Your iniquities have caused him to turn his face from you so that he does not hear. We look at that moment when it became dark. And we'll talk about that darkness in just a moment. And when Jesus, through that darkness, cries out to his Father and says, why have you forsaken me? And we see in that, because the Son became our sin, the Father turning from his Son and abandoning him. If that is indeed what happened, it is a very meaningful thought. But I want to suggest another way of looking at it. You see, a common way of teaching in that day for rabbis was to invoke an entire psalm by simply quoting the opening statement. Remember, Jesus was a teacher. He's quoting the first line of a messianic psalm. It's Psalm 22. I invite you to turn with me, and I want to suggest the possibility that Jesus is, in fact, teaching right up till the very end, pointing to the passage that speaks of what is happening in this very moment. It's haunting to make that connection, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? 
Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and I'm not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you, our fathers put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. I'm just going to pause here because I don't want you to miss what I'm about to read. We have read in Matthew the details around the crucifixion of Jesus. We are about to read them again, only written a thousand years before the events took place. Verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Do not be far from me. For trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart was turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. Listen to this. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. That's haunting, isn't it? You see what Jesus may very well be doing for us? Even as he hangs, suspended between heaven and earth, taking our sin, the wrath of God upon himself for that sin, he's pointing the path. He's still teaching. He's saying to the world, do you see what I'm doing for you? What I was always meant to do for you. It's just as important to see how the psalm ends. Look at verse 22. I will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. What? What does it say? He begins by crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he ends by reminding himself, he has not forsaken me. He has not disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. He has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. If what I'm suggesting is correct, then in fact, Jesus is not crying out in desperation. It's not a moment where his faith fails him. It is not a moment when the father rejects his son. In fact, he is calling us out to see what he's doing. And it is also a declaration that in crying out to his father, just as happened in Gethsemane, the father has not forsaken him. He has heard his cry. He has come to his side. It's really powerful, isn't it? It's amazing to consider that. 
Interesting to think about this idea that Jesus, right up until he gave up his last breath, did not stop being the Christ, did not stop seeking and saving, did not stop teaching and glorifying the Father until his work was finished. It is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Let's look at what the Father may have been seeing in these moments. The first place that we see the Father is the darkness. Verse 45, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. Let me explain a little bit about that. A lot of cynics think that maybe there was a solar eclipse that took place. But this, first of all, happened at noon. The sixth hour for the Jewish clock was midday. It was noon. Passover always took place when there was a new moon. Solar eclipse never take place during a new moon. This is an act of God along the line of the darkness that the Egyptians experienced when God was pouring out his anger and wrath against them. So I want to suggest that the darkness demonstrates the wrath of God that's being poured out in this moment that Jesus was speaking about in the garden when he said, Father, if there's any way you can remove my drinking this cup, and we learn from Isaiah and Jeremiah, that that cup was the cup of God's wrath, his wrath against sin, the judgment. Jesus was going to take the judgment for all of our sins. The darkness demonstrates the anger of God against sin. Jesus took our cup, the cup of wrath, so that we can take the cup of blessing in the new kingdom. So that's the first thing we see is anger. At the same time, we see that the Father is taking great pleasure in this. Remember what we saw in Isaiah 53 a couple weeks ago? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've each turned his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Farther on, it says, it pleased the Father to crush him. The father took pleasure in bruising his son because it was the only means by which we could avoid that judgment. So there's pleasure as well. But ultimately, what we see in him is grace. We see grace in the father at this moment, reconciling the world to himself. You might say, where do we see that? Well, it's in this this scene that happens just some distance away from the garbage dump on which Jesus is being crucified. And that's verse 51. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs. And after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. We don't don't focus too much about that resurrection part. In fact, I, I don't remember ever hearing a sermon about it. And I'm not going to preach about it now. I'm just going to point it out to say that there is something victorious that happens that from God's perspective, there is no defeat here. And this is, I think, really important for us to capture. When we look at the cross, our calendar almost plays into it. We have Palm Sunday. The triumphal entry is on a Sunday. Easter is on a Sunday. When do we celebrate the death of Christ? Good Friday. And that's appropriate because that's when it happened in the week. But on our cultural scale of importance, how many of us actually make Good Friday services? Not extremely well attended 
in most of the Protestant church. Because what we see essentially is the death of Christ as a necessary evil, as a temporary setback so that we can celebrate the ultimate victory, which is Easter Sunday. But that isn't God's perspective. God does not see the cross as a defeat to be overcome. God the Father sees the cross as the victory. And we'll talk about the resurrection and the role it plays in validating that victory. But the cross, from God the Father's perspective, was a win. How do we know that? We know that because the veil that had stood in the temple to separate all of humanity, except the high priest once a year, from God and the Holy of Holies was literally torn, and he's very careful to say it, from the top to the bottom. Do you understand that? It's as though God reached out of heaven and just went, we don't need this anymore. Because the true Lamb of God has shed his blood for all of us. God's wrath has been satisfied. The barrier between us and intimacy with the Father can be done away with. What we see in the cross is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5. God was reconciling us to himself in Christ, not through the resurrection, in the cross. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, now that place that was once feared, that they went into fearing death and judgment, that they were unworthy to come into the presence of a holy God inside the Holy of Holies. Now we can come boldly because we have been washed clean, sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. We have access to God. The relationship that was broken is now available, not because of the empty tomb, but because of the dying Savior. His death brought our life. His becoming sin allows us to become the righteousness of God. And perhaps God, for a moment, turning from his son, allows him to turn to us face wide open, arms wide open, saying, come, come, let me be your Abba. Be my children once again. We see the Father reconciling. Well, when we come to the fifth perspective, we've been looking at it the whole time, haven't we? This whole series is us looking back with hindsight and not necessarily being 2020, but knowing what's coming. We've been able to tie the pieces together and understand the story. So, really, the whole view we've shared today is our view. But I, I want to talk about three responses that I think ought to be ours when we, when we view the cross. Three emotional, intellectual, spiritual responses. And I want to give my dad credit for these because they're the three primary points to a sermon that he's been doing for the last two or three years on the cross. The first response ought to be affection. Romans 5. God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we look at the cross, we see the Father's love for us. We see the Son's love for the Father. And the first response ought to be 
affection, that he would take that on for us, that he would drink that cup of wrath so that we could experience not death, but life eternally. A second response is anguish. I think that there ought to be a moment in this season before we come to the celebration next week where we recognize what made the cross necessary. And we own up that it was your sin, it was my sin that put him there. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. There ought to be some anguish in that. As we look at the suffering he takes and recognize that that should be us were it not for the reconciling love and saving grace of God. And then the third thing, and this is what we always want to recapture when we come back to it, and that is the sense of amazement and wonder. It should never be our goal when we go back through these familiar stories to button them up, to get them all figured out. We need to always look at them with wonder and amazement and awe, recognizing that God somehow in his great love for us and in his wisdom saw this as the necessary path to marvel at the man Jesus, the life he lived, the deity he demonstrated in his compassion for people, in his miracles, in his teaching, in his authority. The great love for his father and for humanity that he demonstrated as he hung on the cross. Amazement should mark the follower of Jesus. When we look at all that Jesus did from the beginning until the death and beyond.